So if you're confused about the kingdom, I want to give you a message today that I've called Receiving Clarity on the Kingdom. And what I'm going to show you should encourage you, but it better motivate you. Because you're not the first person who's been confused on the kingdom. I want to give you three individuals and one group of people that were confused in the Gospels about the kingdom. So for the sake of time, let's get into the word. The first person I want to show you that didn't get it was a man named Nicodemus in John chapter number 3. So this is what John 3 says, beginning in verse number 1, that there was a man of the Pharisees. Those were the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know uh, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Paraphrased. I don't get it. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. How many of you have heard about Brother Nicodemus? Yeah, we've, we've heard about Nicodemus just a few verses later is the most famous verse in the Bible, which is John 3, 16. And that happens in the context of this meeting with Nicodemus. And so we know about Nicodemus a few things. He's a very moral man. He, he takes his relationship with Yahweh, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, takes it very seriously. He takes the scriptures incredibly seriously. You're not going to find too many more moral individuals in Jerusalem in the first century at the time of Jesus than uh, the Nicodemus and men and women like Nicodemus. By the way, he also has a position in religious leadership. So I want you to put all that together. He's moral. He is scripturally educated, the, the Hebrew Bible. He is positioned in leadership. He's been in a religious setting at the highest level his whole life. And then this rab, maverick rabbi from Nazareth shows up on the scene, this guy named Jesus. And just in John chapter 1 and 2, you find out that Jesus has already visited the temple. And you know what he did on his first visit to the temple or one of the first visits? He threw the tables over and he chased people with a whip. Uh, Jesus probably wouldn't get in, be invited back like to our church services because he'd probably have to do a little bit of that too. And so he flipped tables, chased people out with a whip, told them they were hypocrites, they were desecrating the house of God. But also, you're going to find in uh, John 1 and 2 that Jesus had already been working miracles. He'd been doing signs and wonders, healings, and the people were astir about him. And so Nicodemus is struggling inwardly because he even testifies to it. He says, we know that you're a teacher whom God must have sent because nobody can do the things that you do unless God was with him. But here's what he didn't verbally express. He says, but, but you, don't, you don't abide in our system. You don't do things the way that we do. And it was a conflict for Nicodemus. He was struggling inwardly because he is drawn to Jesus knowing there is something about him that is 
serving as a catalyst inside of Nicodemus to want more. Nicodemus's religion cannot satisfy the stirrings within him. His morality could not give him the peace that seems to be connecting when he's in the presence of Jesus. He has no power. I mean, the Pharisees, they had their Bible, but they had no power. Zero. And so Jesus is healing people that the Pharisees condemn. And so Jesus is in the presence of Nicodemus. Nicodemus sneaks off by night because that's what religion does. Religion doesn't want anybody to know that it's actually asking questions. You're not allowed to ask questions in religion, by the way. Uh, in, in, in relationship, you can ask as many questions as you want. So he gets into the presence of Jesus. He's expressing all of what is going on for him. And I love what he said. He says, Jesus, we know you must be sent from God because you're doing these signs. And Jesus doesn't even address what he says. He immediately looks at him and he says, nobody can, be born, nobody can enter the kingdom of God except they be born again. Jesus just moves the goalpost completely. Nicodemus is wanting to talk about signs and wonders and what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus just says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And immediately Jesus is introducing to a seeker the concept of the kingdom of God. And by the way, he didn't just say it for Nicodemus. He said it for everybody. He says, you can't even see the kingdom of God until you are born again. You see, my friends, one of the reasons that we, 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 we want to promote full surrender to Jesus Christ we don't want you to dabble in Jesus. By the way, Jesus doesn't want you to dabble in Jesus. Jesus said, I'd rather you be cold-hearted against me or hot for me rather than be dabbling in lukewarm waters. And so the, the reality is, is we, we promote and preach and proclaim and, and, and foster momentum towards the full recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our life. Why? Because that's the kingdom. The kingdom is not get your dose on Sunday. Or if you want a double dose on Wednesday too. The kingdom is everywhere you go, you're looking for the fingerprints of the Almighty. You're listening for the voice of God. Why? Because everything's his and he is moving and working. Nicodemus is wanting Jesus to explain how he does things. And Jesus just comes and says, oh, what you need is a spiritual birth. So Nicodemus does what people would do. He thinks Jesus is talking about the natural. By the way, have a little mercy on him. He didn't have John 3. He didn't know what born again meant. So he's hearing it for the first time. And, you know, he's saying, born again? It's like, Lord, this is a little awkward, but I, how am I going to get rewombed and, and be born a second time? And Jesus says, yeah, um, you don't understand because what you just said, that's born of flesh. That which is a flesh, uh, that which is, proceeds from flesh is flesh. That which comes from the spirit is spirit. And then he says again, don't marvel that I told you, you've got to be born again. And then Jesus just throws in the statement of, of the spirit being, in a sense, people led by the spirit, slightly unpredictable, slightly undefined, blowing where, like the wind where it goes and where it comes. And you can't really, you can't really control it. You can't really predict it. I just think it's amazing that when this religious seeker comes to Jesus, Jesus just starts hitting him with, with, with thoughts about what it means to experience the kingdom rather than giving him more doctrine to wade through. He tells him, there's an experience, Nicodemus, that you haven't had yet. And Nicodemus, you need to experience a spiritual rebirth because you're actually not regenerate on the inside. That's how we would say it today. And then he tells Nicodemus this, um, you know, this issue of, of being born with the Spirit and blowing like the wind. And Nicodemus just says, huh? I mean, that's, that's how I would interpret it. He, ESV says, how can these things be? He's just saying, what? What? What are you talking about? And I love what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, are you the teacher in Israel and you don't get these things? Watch this. Nick, it's, it's emphatic. It's a definite article. The teacher. Nicodemus seems to be, by this statement, the preeminent teacher of the Jews in Israel, and he doesn't even get the basic foundational components of how to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there's two things I want to say here. One, if you're struggling or you're becoming aware that your views of your Christianity have been less than kingdom, maybe more culturally defined, are local church defined rather than kingdom defined and you're saying oh no how have I wasted these years why did my pastors not tell me this how come my parents didn't tell me this how how come I don't know this what time have I wasted and those kind of things can come upon you let me just say hold on a second because Nicodemus was among the religious um, religiously educated elite in his day and he didn't get it either So this isn't meant to condemn you. This is meant to expose the fact that you can be around all of the things of God like Nicodemus was and still not see the kingdom. What has to happen? The Spirit's got to blow on you. The Holy Spirit's got to come. Say, well, Jeff, I'm already reborn. Well, good. That's where it begins. That's not where it ends. Again, what we've done is we've told people, well, once you're born again, you just wait, hold your breath. You're going to go to heaven one day, and then you can experience the Lord. That's not the Bible. So Nicodemus is um, somewhat encouraging us, but he also serves as a warning. I mean, folks, it's possible to be a lifelong church member, to be orthodox in your theology, sound in your doctrine, rigid and faithful in your morals, and, 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 and engaged in, in, in ministry and all of that. He was all of those things. He was a Bible guy, and uh, he didn't see any of it. By the way, his story ends better than it begins because if you turn to the last chapters of the book of John, when Jesus has been crucified, taken down off the cross, we all think of Joseph of Arimathea because he provided the tomb, but do you know who was right by his side? Another Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. I'll just say this, the wind blew on him. He got it. Second group of people that didn't get it And this is a little embarrassing because these guys are saved. Who is it? The disciples. Jesus' disciples didn't get the kingdom. You say, Jeff, how can you say such a thing? It's going to be very evident. So in Luke chapter 22, verse number 24, this is the disciples. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So let me tell you what makes this little snapshot more interesting. Just before this is the Last Supper in the upper room. These guys have walked side by side with Jesus for over three years. Years, side by side, day in, day out. 
They saw every miracle. They heard every sermon. They got privately tutored and discipled in the ways of the kingdom. They heard more about the kingdom from Jesus than any people that had ever walked the planet at that time. And there they are. And then Jesus says, it's getting close. We've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm about to be uh, sent over into the hands of the authorities. They're going to try me. They're going to crucify me. I will rise again, but my hour has come. And it's completely over their head. He takes them into the upper room. He takes a basin of water, a basin, fills it with water, takes off his robe, puts on the lowest class of slavehood in Roman slavery. He puts on the slave garments, and then he takes the nasty feet of the disciples, including the one who's about to walk out on those feet and betray him, and he washes their feet. It's the king of the universe washing the feet of men, all of whom are about to abandon him. And so they have the upper, the upper room supper. He says, we'll eat this again and we'll drink this cup again in the kingdom. And it points to a yet future time. And so they leave. And what is their response? You know, I think I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm just kind of, I think this is a word of knowledge that, yes, that it is. I'm going to be right next to Jesus in the kingdom and y'all are going to be in the back of the line. And then somebody else says, no, no, I actually got the word of knowledge. You you don't have discernment, brother. Uh, This is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, you're actually going to be 11th in line, and I'm going to be first in line. And so it, it starts to grow, and they're literally arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom after Jesus just washed their feet. It'd be bad enough if this was the only time that happened, but there are two other occasions where they are jockeying for position. Right when Jesus' earthly ministry started, they had this same conversation. So what does that say? It says, at the beginning of the ministry, they were focused on what Jesus could do for them. At the end of their ministry with Jesus, they were focused on what Jesus could do for them. They even got one of their mamas involved. You remember that? Mrs. John and James? Hello, Master. Hi, this is James and John. I know you know them, but um, I was wondering, could you pray about something? Could you pray that one of my boys could be in your left hand and one on your right hand when you come into the kingdom? That sounds just like a church mom, amen? (laughs) Just like a church mom. You know, and, you know, say what you want. She just just wants her boys to be as close to Jesus as possible. That's the best spin I can put on it. But the, the reality is those were positions of honor. And to them, their understanding of the kingdom was about how will the kingdom promote me? I don't know. Has much changed? You know, let's just be real. If we're ever going to get real about the kingdom and we're ever going to go further into it, we need to acknowledge where we currently are. Origin determines outcome. And, and, if, and if we're not honest about our point of origin, we'll never reach that designated place of outcome that the Lord has. And so what, what do we need to learn about this? That, that Jesus actually prioritized servanthood he knew his identity he said i have been assigned a kingdom from my father and then he turns to the disciples he says and you have too he says you're going to sit with me you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging israel in the kingdom and that's literal by the way that's not just some kind of wispy thought up in the clouds that jesus is literally telling 11 of those men and there'll be another added that there will be they will serve in a capacity of, of of eldership and judgment discernment over israel in the kingdom And he's saying, you've already got everything you need. I mean, the the unpacking of that is, you're not only in the kingdom, you're privileged in the kingdom. Let it be enough for you that you got in. Let it be enough for you that you have a place in the kingdom. Let it be enough for you that the Father has assigned you and apportioned to you something to do in the kingdom. Stop competing with each other. 
because competition among each other, all of us, is antithetical to the spirit of the kingdom. You can't promote you and promote Jesus at the same time. You can't. It just doesn't work that way. And so what Jesus had just done is he had just shown them, hey, if you, if you want to be awesome in the kingdom, do what I did. Because when he washed their feet, he said, I've left you an example that as I have done to you, you should do to each other. One would think that Jesus would say, as I have washed your feet, now start washing mine. But that's not what he said. He said, as I have washed your feet, make sure that you live with the attitude of washing each other's feet, which is servanthood. You see, this is what's beautiful. Being a servant in the kingdom never compromised his kingship over the kingdom. And he wants us to kind of have that same DNA. And so, listen, the spotlight is the place you run from in the kingdom. You don't run to the spotlight. You run from it. Now, if God determines to put it on you for a moment, then you abide under that and you retain your humility. But do you realize that we, we, have, we, have, we literally have, we have started to imbibe from the culture, the cutthroat competitive nature of people in our culture, and it works its way into the church. You say, Jeff, what does it look like? Well, it looks like you cussing under your breath when somebody stole your parking lot <laughs> place out there this morning. Or, or, or when you didn't get to sing the solo. Or, or, or when nobody asked you to preach. Or when you got passed over at work for the promotion. And so-and-so got it, and God knows that they aren't as talented and skilled as you. And there's just something within us that wants to rise up and roar on behalf of ourselves. Linda, me and you were getting this. I don't know about the rest of the crew in here today. but <laughs> Jesus wanted to tell him, hey, guys, y'all don't, Y'all don't have to jockey for position in the kingdom. You're going to be there with me. This is the time to take a towel and take a bowl and take some water and start serving one another. I'm glad to be a son, but hear me on this. I'm not so much of a son that I'm exempt from being a servant. I'm glad you're a daughter, but you're not so much of a daughter. Listen, sister, yeah, okay, your position is that of a princess, but the princess is going to serve the king. And so when we, when we walk through these things, I'm looking at the disciples, I'm like, huh, those brothers didn't get it either. They didn't get the kingdom. So what do we learn from this? All I'm going to do is I'm going to keep layering this, that it's easy to miss the kingdom. It's actually easy to miss it unless you're determined to see it. And it is my opinion that most of us have not been um, shepherded into an intentionality about the kingdom in our day-to-day living. Why? Because kingdom is what we do for an hour, two hours, if Jeff is preaching, on Sunday morning. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of it. And then we got real life. And so what we're trying to do in this series is we're seeking to reverse this. Now, l- let me make it a little easier on us because there's another guy that didn't get it, and his name is Pilate. And obviously, Pilate is an unbeliever, but I want you to see something in his dialogue with Jesus in John 18. So the Bible says in John 18, 33, Pilate, and this is where Jesus has been beaten and bloodied, and he's about to be crucified. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, what's the question? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answers, you can hear kind of the disgust in his voice, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
Watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And he says it again, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. It carries the understanding of you rightly say, yes, I am a king. For this purpose, watch this. For being a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then he adds this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate, standing in the presence of he who is the way, the truth, and the life, Pilate says, what's truth? Pilate is like so many people who are, you know, have, have sacrificed at the altar of secular humanism. And they believe there is no absolute truth. And Pilate's question there at the end just kind of embodies the blindness of the culture that is all around you. What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? And this question has been asked. It is the philosophical question. Typically unpacked, what is the meaning of life? But what people are looking for is, is there actual truth? Uncompromised, unwavering, undiluted, always the same. Is there truth? And so when Pilate is entering this dialogue with Jesus, again, the question is that, the, the question to be answered is, is, is Jesus a rival king to Caesar? I, I want you to think about this because, listen, I'm not taking away from any of the validity that Jesus is Savior. I want you to hear me on that. He is Savior and the only Savior. Nobody comes unto the Father except through him. That is gospel truth. But the, the problem, if there's a problem, here's what I believe it is. We have so emphasized him as Savior and a failure to equally maximize that he is a king that the result is when we receive him as Savior, we're done and we never know him as king. And he just said here, let me, let me, let me read it right here. He says, you say I'm a king for this purpose I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world. Jesus' own testimony is that he was born to be a king. He left heaven and came into the world to be a king. And if we're not um, interacting with him on some level in that reality, then we're missing the very purpose for which he said he came to earth. So the kingdom is not a side issue. It's not some, you know, prophetic issue that we'll figure out when we're in the kingdom at the end of the age. No, friends. So much hinges on our ability to comprehend that we are in the kingdom now. The kingdom that we are in by faith right now is the same kingdom that is going to be unveiled in the end of the age. It's not two different kingdoms. And the fact that we're in it by faith now does not minimize our need to live it out practically. And so when we're, we're looking at this, Jesus says to people that are in his kingdom, my kingdom's not like this world. We have to hear that, church. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not like the earth's political domains. He doesn't lead like human politicians lead. He doesn't aspire to the things that human politicians aspire to. He doesn't operate by political principles. He operate, operates with a, a throne that is founded 
on truth and justice. And that's very different from the thrones of men. Um, I'm going to pastor you just for a moment here because when we're talking about the kingdom of God in this series, it's just too obvious of a place to go for me to not go there. Some of you are just inwardly messed up on American politics. I'm not saying your political party's messed up. I'm saying you're messed up. You say, Jeff, I'm offended. That's all right. I forgive you for being offended. I'm telling you the truth. Because what's happening? Because you're treating a speck of dust called politics in your lifetime and you're inflating it with an um, importance that you're assigning to it as if the real kingdom's outcome depends on who wins the governor of Georgia (laughs) or the presidency of the United States or the Senate or the Congress or any of that to the extent that it provokes you to communicate God help you on Facebook, in ways that, that are non-kingdom. You mock. You slander. Instead of your love covering a multitude of sins, you're saying, what dirt can I retweet on this candidate who I will never vote for? Yeah, I knew it was going to get quiet. You know why? And, and some of you, man, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm being honest. I, I don't have a, an individual in mind. Actually, I do. I've got one person in mind, but she's not here. But the reality is, is that, no, I, I can't help it because she's just flagrant with this stuff. And she's gotten up in my grill about it. Does anybody say that anymore? Got up in your grill? <laughs> she accosted me verbally. And the reality is, she's so been out of shape and people are so been out of shape. And it's our Christian duty to what? To sin? To slander? To go sleepless nights? Jesus said, hmm, that's beneath you because my kingdom is not of this world. So listen, me and my daughter, we went and voted. She's in here somewhere. We went and voted yesterday. This is what I, I, I tell my kids. Find out which convictions in your heart are unable to be compromised at any level. Discover the candidates that best align with your convictions. You won't find a perfect candidate, but find the one that best. Then vote and then love everybody that votes differently than you. Because a lot of them in the kingdom are going to vote differently than you. And your politics, you can't sacrifice the principles of God's kingdom on the altar of man's kingdom. Jesus just said, my my kingdom's not of this world. He said, "If, if I had a worldly kingdom... All all of my my disciples would have fought for me through violence, through bloodshed. The kingdom is not established by human means, solely human means, or human tactics, or uh, sub-kingdom strategies. You know, Peter took a whack at Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Roman uh, servant, soldier. Peter pulled out his sword and took a whack. He wasn't trying to pierce the brother's ear. He was trying to cut his head off. What did Jesus do? Jesus said, put that away, Peter. Come here, Malchus. And he gave him his ear back. And then he yielded and was led as a lamb to the slaughter. You see, that's not the kind of kingdom that we're promoting here in America. The kind of kingdom that they're teaching our kids and our grandkids 
is to fight for yourself, do whatever it takes. You're, you can compromise your integrity. You can compromise your purity. You can compromise your faith. You can compromise anything as long as it achieves the justifiable ends, which is that you need to end up on top in everything you do. That's the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world says it's all about you. Don't you know that everything's about you? And so they train it to them when they're in kindergartens. It's celebrate me day. Some kid gets tired of that and says, what about celebrate me week? What about celebrate me month? Everybody gets a trophy. And, and, you know, and it's just all about us. And Jesus says, actually, the kingdom will benefit you. But child of God, the kingdom, Jesus says, is about me. And he doesn't apologize for that. He's the only being in existence that can make it all about him and it be right. And somehow we have kind of just drunk the devil's Kool-Aid who wanted it to be all about him. And it's just in us. And so what do you have to do? You have to die. You have to pick up your cross daily and die. This is not the message you're going to get in the church growth movement. This is the message you're going to get in the kingdom growth movement. That you have to, you have to be crucified. You got to pound the nails into that part of you that wants to make it all about you. Why? Because his kingdom doesn't operate like that. His kingdom is actually advanced through us denying ourselves, not promoting ourselves. Why? Because that's what he did. He's the king. So Pilate looks at it, and Pilate's like, um, are you a king I need to be concerned about? And Jesus, in essence, is telling him, Caesar doesn't have to worry about me because my kingdom's not like y'all's kingdom. And ultimately, Pilate ends the conversation by admitting his ignorance of the kingdom. He says, what is truth? What is truth? I think it's great to ask that question. I think it's really bad when it's asked in a way that assumes there isn't an answer. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate truth. His nature, his mission, his sacrifice, his heart, his promises, every prophetic word that was ever written down in our Old Testament about him, every prophetic New Testament nuance is going to come to pass. Why? Because he is true and everything he does is in truth. Let me give you this one quickly. Religion doesn't get it. Nicodemus doesn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. Uh, Nicodemus gets it now, I believe, but he didn't get it then. The disciples didn't get it. Pilate didn't get it, and religion doesn't get it. And so what do I mean by that? Um, this is not an anti-Semitic. This is biblical narrative and truth. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people of Jesus' day absolutely rejected him. John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own would not receive him. And so it looks like this in John 19. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. That is the biggest religious festival in the Jewish calendar, religious observance in the Jewish calendar. And it was about the sixth hour. Jesus, uh, Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. So he's beaten, he's bloodied, he's wearing the mockery of the robe. They've given him the reed. They've pummeled him. He's disfigured. This is our king. This is the Lord of glory. And Pilate said to them, or they said to Pilate, away with him. Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the religious leaders, answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered, uh, delivered him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one 
on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I want you to get this. Again, Jesus begins his earthly ministry with the proclamation of the kingdom. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The bulk of Jesus' earthly ministry, his preaching ministry, was focused on the kingdom. Ten of his parables expressly, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Uh, When he was right about to be crucified, right before this passage, he is preaching to his disciples about the kingdom. After his resurrection, his first message and his ongoing message for over a month is the kingdom of God. And here in his hour, as he's about to be hung on the cross, The question to the people is, do you not want your king? Do you not want your king? And the chief priests, lying through their teeth, said, only Caesar is our king. They hated Caesar, but they didn't hate him as much as they hated Jesus. They wanted a worthy ruler who could topple Caesar, and Jesus didn't come like that. Jesus wasn't a military might. He wasn't a powerhouse, impressive force to be reckoned with. You know, except for the fact that he literally just cast out demons and caused the dead to live and open blind eyes. But they didn't want that. They wanted a military political king. And so when, when Pilate says to them, don't you want your king? And they're like, we don't want him. And so, I mean, do you see the grace of God just going back and back to the Jews? He's your king. He's your king. He's your king. He's beaten and he's bloodied, but still one more chance. He's your king. He's your king. They said, away with him, crucify him. So they nail him to the cross, but there's the grace of God then because above his head on the cross, there's the message, the king of the Jews. It's it's like God was shouting from heaven, he is the king, he is the king, he is the king. And the blind eyes of religion said, just take that sign down or edit it, do, do something. We don't like reading that. It's religion today. Why doesn't religion want to acknowledge Jesus as king? Because it puts him in charge. And in in any religious system, there's always some person or some people in charge protecting something less than the kingdom. Yeah. That's what you're going to find. Religion empowers a handful of people in wherever it is, and they work a system that favors them at the expense of others. And they control it and protect it. And when the lordship of Christ is introduced into the concept of it, they would rather say no to Jesus in order to preserve their kingship. That's what they were doing. So friends, let me tell you, let's not just point a finger at, at at the Jewish leaders. It still happens today. Give you a quick word of testimony. I no longer know what time we're supposed to get out. I'm so lost in these two services. But if you've got to leave, you've got to leave, and you're not going to hurt my feelings. I remember in my former denominational days where I was in a denomination that did not affirm the works, the ongoing works, and the miracles and signs and wonders and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I remember as God began to lead me to lead the church into a a clearly biblical understanding of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
I, I was naive enough at one point to, to think, oh, well, if I can just prove it biblically, then everybody's going to be happy and we'll all be prophesying and, you know, doing all this stuff. And, and so I just thought, well, let me just, let me just promote it biblically. And friends, you'll never, and I don't want to go into details, but I can tell you, I, I must have gone home crushed, heartbroken as I would meet with leaders and they would say something to the effect of, we don't care what the Bible says. Our bylaws say we don't do that stuff. I'm not exaggerating. What is that? It's a religious system seeking to be protected from the fullness of God. Now, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. You know, cessationists aren't the only ones who don't get it on certain things. There's a lot of charismatics out there that need to just repent and welcome the Lord to be king over all that goes on. And so we're not, we're not trying to divide and point fingers. What I'm saying is all of us as Christians need to recognize that wherever religion is promoted, the king won't be enthroned there. And so ultimately they did. They crucified Jesus. So now that we've been borderline depressed over seeing everything that's wrong, <laughs> as we approach, let me give you two places, two, two types of people that did get it. They do get the kingdom. And amazingly, the first is the children got it. Matthew 21, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. That's ascribing, those are Jewish terms that ascribe kingship to Jesus. The little kids were saying, King, son of David, Messiah. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's healing people. He's opening blind eyes. This is him. This is, and these are like prepubescent kids. The Greek word means like pre-adolescent children. And they're saying, he's, this is him. This is the one we've been looking for. Mommy, daddy, this is him. But the religious leaders heard that and they were indignant. That's Greek for they were ticked off. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Isn't that awesome? That the kids got it, but the, the doctors of the Jewish law didn't get it. The positioned men didn't get it. The, the Bible scholars didn't get it. But the second grader got it. You see, these innocent children, they're, they're heaping enthusiastic praise upon Jesus as the son of David, and that's a kingly title, and their simple trust and their confidence that they were actually seeing the king in the temple. The result was in these innocent but true anthems start coming out of their, their mouths, and it, it infuriated the religious leaders. You know, I, I believe this, that in a healthy child there is a natural trust. Um, children, before they experience any kind of negative, um, frightening things in their life, their natural bend, if they're in a healthy environment, is to trust and to give themselves. That's unfortunately why they're preyed upon in our culture. But that innocence and that trust and that, that receptability, that, that willingness to receive and to believe the best. Jesus said... If you're ever going to enter the kingdom, you've got to become like them. He actually said, 
that we have to be more childlike to, to experience even the entrance into the kingdom. Problem is, is the older we get, the more skeptical we get, the more guarded we get. We, we get a little hard, don't we? We get a little calloused over. And something happens that if we're not intentionally fighting about that, kingdom, by the way, is happening all around you. Sometimes you don't think it's kingdom because you're skeptical. There, there is so much, it, the kingdom can't be hidden for those that are looking for it. And the problem is, is that we've been trained to, you know, search out the counterfeits. And because there's enough counterfeits out there, we assume that there's nothing genuine anymore. And Jesus wants us to be like little children. Little children are open. They're willing to be disappointed. They don't even think about the potential of being disappointed. They're just open. And they're the ones that were shouting in the temple <laughs> while the religious leaders are all clenched up over in the corner trying to call a business meeting about how to shut them up. And they said to Jesus, they said to Jesus, you hear what they're singing about you? And he's like, yeah, it's great. It's awesome. Kids, do it again. Four-part harmony, go. <laughs> he didn't say that, but I, I could just see that. So what, what, what is it? They got nothing to prove. The little children have nothing to prove. And if you walk in the kingdom, it will be according to the degree which you live with nothing to prove. If you're still trying to prove yourself to yourself, to your parents, to the world, to the religious crowd out there, you're still entering into that constant strife. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. You're going to miss the kingdom because you're going to be so preoccupied with you that the kingdom will just kind of pass you by. Or the kingdom at best won't be any bigger than you. And so when, when these little kids, they're just, they got nothing to prove. They're like, that's Jesus. He's awesome. He's not a threat to me. His kingdom is glorious. I love you. Can I hug you? Jesus says, yeah, come on up into my lap. And the disciples, remember what the disciples did? The, the disciples like the Gestapo. Hey, get the kids out of his lap. Get the kids out of his lap. We're doing ministry here. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me because it's the purest commitment that he got while he was on earth was from these little children who didn't have anything to prove worship team you can come on up as i finish this last point the con condemned thief got it the little kids got it and the condemned thief the soldiers also mocked jesus he's on the cross here luke 23 coming up and offering sour wine and vinegar and saying if you are the king of the jews there it is again save yourself then it mentions the inscription then it says one of the criminals who was hanged railed at jesus saying are you not the christ save yourself and us but the other rebuked him saying do you not fear god since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly we're receiving the due reward of what we've done but this man has done nothing wrong and watch this he said jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Let me tell you something. The little kids had nothing to prove. The thief on the cross had nothing to lose. And we've got to live there. To me, it's the greatest display of faith anywhere in the New Testament. Because a few hours earlier, this thief had been joining the other thief, railing on Jesus, mocking him, scoffing at him. All around him, the chief priests, the Roman guards, everybody's mocking his kingship. That's what the address is. Listen, they talked to him, if you're the son of God, but they also said, if you're the king of the Jews. 
So Satan's attack on Jesus was verbally him hearing over and over again, you're not the king, you're not the king, you're not the king. Why does Satan go so hard after the kingship of Jesus? Because for this purpose he came. And so that's why he goes for it in your life. That's why the enemy tries to keep you in the bubble of I'm going to heaven when I die. And you're literally waiting to do life with Jesus after your life is over. But when you think of the kingdom and you say, I've got nothing to lose, why? How can that be true? Because friends, we died. You have died in your life, Colossians 3. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Dead people don't live in fear of losing temporary things. Status, privilege, possessions. Applause. We don't care about that stuff to the degree that we're walking in the kingdom. This thief looks over at Jesus and he, the, Isaiah 53 says he was beaten so badly he didn't look human. He was disfigured, so marred beyond the sons of men. And this thief has watched Jesus respond to the insults and the mockery from both the religious authorities and the Roman authorities. And then he hears this strange kind of muddled Aramaic prayer come out of the mouth of this one named Jesus. And he's not sure, but it sounded like Jesus just said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And immediately faith is born in that man's heart. He's never seen anybody die like that before. And something happens. The wind of the Spirit blows on his crucified body into his soul. And the man knows, just knows it in his knower, that Jesus is the king. And he looks over, no longer railing against Jesus, no longer demanding that Jesus set him free from that cross. But he says to Jesus one thing, you are a king, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I will remember it and it will begin today when you step into paradise with me. Nothing to lose, nothing to prove. If you'll begin to live that way, you're gonna walk deeper in the kingdom than any church membership, conference, Bible study, our experience will ever give you if you'll walk in this life pursuing Jesus with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your spirit. If you'll do that, having nothing to prove and nothing to lose, you're going to see the kingdom. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.